In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Let's try that again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Christ is in our midst. It's like thunder. The Amen should be like thunder. Did you know? Did you know? Americans love trivia. Did you know that the first Sunday of Lent for 800 years was dedicated to the prophets? To the prophets. The hymns reflect this. The hymns that, O Lord, I cry, and throughout Orthros, like at the praises, they reflect this. The epistle reading mentions the prophets. The epistle from Hebrews chapter 11, and even in the gospel, Philip tells Nathaniel, we have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. And actually the prophets are still commemorated on the first Sunday of Lent. The church in 842 added on top of that another commemoration of the restoration of the icons. We'll get to that in a minute. But what is a prophet? And what is a prophecy? A prophet is simply one who delivers a message from the Lord. For those of you who have children who are fans of VeggieTales, you'll know what I'm talking about. They sing songs about a message from the Lord. And a prophecy is not merely a prediction, not merely a foretelling of what is to come. A prophecy is a truth about reality. Now, many prophecies do foretell the future. You can think about Isaiah, right? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. But not every prophecy is a foretelling of the future. There are many prophecies that are calling people back to repentance. Some of them say, if you don't, this will happen. Some of them just say, you need to return. Think about John the Baptist in the wilderness. The, the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the last of the prophets... People come to him and he says, the Pharisees come to him and he says, brood of vipers. Right? He's he's revealing a truth about the reality of their heart. So, a prophet, a prophet is one that is in communion with God, whose heart is pure and is open to the words that God provides, and then delivers that message to the people who need to hear it. Within the church today, we don't have prophets foretelling the future, but we still have the priesthood and the episcopacy, and there is a prophetic ministry within the Orthodox Church. If you come to the priest and say, I have a problem, it's up to the priest to pray and to ask God for discernment to help the person realize the truth of the situation. That is a prophetic ministry. 
So the church celebrates the prophets on this, the first day of Lent. Why? The first Sunday of Lent. Excuse me, not the first day. Why would the church uphold the commemoration of the prophets here? Because Lent is nothing else than a calling back of the people of God to repentance and to communion with Him. Lent, the entirety of Lent is telling us we have gone astray, much like Israel in the Old Testament, and we need to come back. And if you showed up and, and heard the canon of St. Andrew during the first week of Lent, that message is very clear. Very, very clear. St. Andrew puts into words what we need to have in our hearts, but we are so hard-hearted and stiff-necked, we just kind of say like, yeah, I hear it, but that's not really me. So, the prophets call us back to communion with God. The prophets call us away from consumerism with the world. And so, for 800 years, on the first Sunday of Lent, the church celebrated the prophets. But, between the 8th and the 9th centuries, there is a very long period, over 100 years of iconoclasm, when some people in the church, some leaders of the church, thought it was a good idea to stop venerating icons because they thought it was idol worship. Because they thought it went against the command in the Old Testament not to have any graven images. St. John of Damascus beautifully refutes this heresy in his treatise on the divine images. And in 787, the Seventh Ecumenical Council upholds the veneration of icons and upholds it as a matter of dogma and doctrine essential to orthodoxy, because if we do not venerate icons, we deny the reality of the incarnation of our Lord. But even though there was a meeting in 787, and they said, and the church, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said, we defend icons, we need to venerate icons, we believe this is good. In true orthodox fashion, the heresy lasted for another 60 years through iconoclastic emperors. And the last of the iconoclastic emperors died in 842. And to put this in perspective, when I say iconoclastic, he wasn't removing icons from the church. He was simply torturing and killing people who, kill, who, who kissed icons. He thought it was okay to look at them, but not to venerate them. In other words, he was turning the church into a museum. If you go to a museum, you see all sorts of artifacts. And they're well preserved. And they're fascinating. And you look at them, and you learn all about them, and you think about them, and you dare not touch them. Otherwise, you'll be thrown out. And you certainly can't use them, right? 
You go to the Air and Space Museum, you see the first airplane flown by the Wright brothers. You can't get in that bad boy and fly it around. Like, <laughs> you'll go to jail. That's not what it's for. But in the church, icons are not meant for simply pondering and thinking about. They're a means of communion. They're not just an idea. They are a representation, but they don't just stand in the place of something that doesn't exist anymore. They are a re... Let me me change the way we say the word. They are a re-presentation. A re-presentation of the reality that exists. There are people who gather for all sorts of war reenactments. The most famous that I can think of is the Civil War reenactments in Gettysburg. And there's a large group of people that get together every year. They'll put on their um, uniforms and, and go out in the heat and they'll, they'll shoot each other, pretend to shoot each other and fall, pretend to fall down dead and like give people a visual image of what it was like at Gettysburg after the, after the battle. Those people do not believe they are actually fighting the battle, nor do they believe they are communicating in some way with those who have died in the battle. They are simply saying, well, we're, we're reenacting this history, but it's not the real history. There's a temptation in the church to think that what we do in the liturgy is something similar. That we're reenacting the Last Supper, or we're reenacting this, or reenacting that. And that's not quite true. We don't reenact anything in the church. We enter into the mystery of the reality. We enter into the mystery. Our liturgical language says, today... Not 2,000 years ago. It says today. On Holy Thursday, one of my favorite hymns. On Holy Thursday, we will sing, Today, he who hung the earth upon the waters is suspended upon a tree. Today. We say Christ is risen, not Christ was risen. So we enter into this reality, this is a mystery, and this is symbol, symbolism. Those of you familiar with the writings of Father Alexander Schmemann know that symbolism is not something taking the place of something else, but it's the uniting of two realities, and it's the revelation of a reality that's already there. It's a revelation of the reality that's there that we can't see. Okay? So what does all this mean? You might be saying, okay, that sounds great. We agree with everything that you've said. What does this mean? Let's get to the heart of the issue. The icons were restored to the church on the first Sunday of Lent. The emperor died, and for the first week of Lent, the empress, Theodora, asked the church to pray for the forgiveness of her husband. This is a very good reason why we pray for the departed. We do for them what they were unable to do for themselves sometimes. But on that first Sunday of Lent, 
patriarch Methodius who had been tortured in defense of the icons. That's called persecution, a real persecution. He was there in the church in Constantinople and the Empress Theodora took an icon and she kissed it. Remember, this was against the law while her husband was alive. She took the icon and she kissed it. And they carried icons around the church and they started venerating the icons. This is called the restoration of the icons, but more importantly, it's called the triumph of orthodoxy. This is our faith. Our faith is not a set of mental agreements or dogmas that we keep in our head. That It's not a checklist of, okay, I agree with that, I agree with that, I agree with that, I'm orthodox. To say that I believe in one God means that there's action behind that. In Greek, the word faith is pistevo, or uh, the, the word I believe. It's the same as saying I faith, okay? It's pistevo. It's an action verb. It's not passive. It's not passive. And so therefore, when we venerate the icons and when the icons were restored to the church in 842 and people stopped being tortured for venerating the icons, this is a triumph of orthodoxy. It's a triumph of communion with the unseen reality of God and the kingdom of heaven. For some reason in our culture, it's okay to kiss a picture of my dead grandmother, but it's not okay to kiss a picture of the mother of God. That doesn't make any sense. This is what happens when we stop becoming communicants and start becoming consumers. When we start hanging icons on the wall and stop venerating them, but have them there merely to decorate and adorn our houses, to put on the air that we're orthodox. This is what happens when our faith becomes a matter of superstition rather than action. When it becomes superstition rather than veneration. I'm going to have an icon and it's going to protect me. And I don't have to do anything. Well, you need to have a relationship with it. And in the book of Genesis, God says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Every human being is made in the image of God. Image, icon. We are icons of the living God. So how do we venerate each other? We have to love each other. And when a baby is born, we don't bring the baby home from the hospital and say, isn't he cute? We're going to sit here and look at him for the next 18 years. That's preposterous. We interact with him. Does he always respond to us? No. Do we know that something's going on? Yeah. And people say, well, science tells us the brain is working, whatever. Okay. But there's an icon of God right in front of us, and we interact with it. We love through relationship, through interaction. The same is true for the communion of the saints. 
Those who have run the good race and fought the good fight, they've gone on before us, and so we take their icons and we embrace them. We venerate them. The outside world wants to take the most beautiful icons and put them in museums. And you know what happens if they go to a museum? They rot. But you know what happens to an icon that has been in storage for years and years and maybe has become darkened and decayed? You know what happens when that icon gets put back into a church where people can venerate it and pray before it? It starts to restore itself. It's amazing. The icons are windows to heaven. They are a symbol bringing together two realities. Two realities. And it's our job, it's our job to express our faith through the veneration of this matter. St. John of Damascus, in his defense of the icons, he says beautifully, I worship the God of matter who became matter for my sake and deigned to inhabit matter who worked out my salvation through matter. Do not despise matter, for it is not despicable. Nothing that God has made is. Only that which does not come from God is despicable. Our own invention, the spontaneous decision to disregard the law of human nature, i.e. sin. That's the only thing that's worth despising. But we venerate the matter to put ourselves right with God. We venerate the icons to restore our relationship with God. And here's where it comes full circle. The prophets are always calling the remnant, the faithful remnant, back. They're always calling those who have gone astray back to true communion with God. Love God, love your neighbor, follow His commandments. And people go off and they start, they fall into idol worship. And you might be thinking, I'm not worshiping some dragon in some other temple. Okay, are you worshiping your money? Are you worshiping your entertainment? Are you worshiping your pursuit of ease and comfort? Are you worshiping yourself? Are you worshiping your intelligence? Are you worshiping your politicians or your celebrities or your athletes? In America, we have all sorts of idols. We have one of the, one of the best-selling TV shows called American Idol. Isn't it wonderful? Think about the name of that show. American Idol. We don't have any problem with this. But the prophets are always calling us back to that right relationship, to that true communion with God. And that starts right here with the veneration of the icons. Our Orthodox faith is not meant to be put on a shelf or on a wall and just accessed like a vending machine whenever we need it in times of crisis. It's meant to be expressed daily. As St. Herman says, every day, every hour, every minute. Moment by moment we're supposed to express our faith. And I'll finish with this. I'll finish with this. One of the best ways to express our faith is to venerate 
our icons and to pray before them, asking God and asking the saints for their help throughout the day. And some of the deepest prayer comes when you are just having communion with the icons and not worried so much about the words that are being said. You just groan with your heart. There's a story about a man who was so tired from work, he comes home and he says, I can't say any prayers tonight. So he goes before his icons and he venerates the icon of our Lord. And he says, Lord, I'm so sorry. I'm too tired to pray tonight. And he kisses the icon. And then he goes to the icon of the Theotokos. He says, my dearest lady, I'm too tired to pray tonight. Please forgive me and please pray for my miserable soul. And he kisses the icon. And then one by one, he goes to all the other icons that he has hanging in his prayer corner. And he kind of loses himself in this prayer. And an hour and a half later, he has had a deeper prayer than he had whenever he said the prayers out of the prayer book. And so the question we have to ask is, do we collect icons and do we collect prayer books or do we use them? Do we have a stack of Bibles that we never read? Or do we have one Bible with earmarks all over, with torn pages from, from repeated use? Do we have relationship with God or do we put Him into a box in our head and we just have an idea of a relationship with Him? Brothers and sisters, our Orthodox faith needs to be real and authentic and expressive. It needs to be one of communion, not one of consumerism, where we just show up to make ourselves feel better or to get something out of it. True communion is giving of ourselves and then waiting for God to give what He will. We offer up our sacrifice during the liturgy of bread and wine. And we offer it up to Him and ask Him to bless it and take it and transform it. And in His mercy and love, He gives it back to us. This joining of two realities, this symbol. We need to venerate our icons. And we also need to venerate the icon of God that we find in our neighbor. And during this Lenten season, let us work harder on making our faith a faith of action rather than a faith of ideas. And have our consent and our agreement turn into communion and active love. May God grant this to us. May God grant us the energy and the desire to love Him with all of our hearts and all of our strength and all of our mind and to venerate His icons to the end of our life. Brothers and sisters, we have a very precious gift. And if you only knew a little bit of the suffering that the church has gone through to defend these icons, you would never again take them for granted. They are beautiful art, but they're more than art. 
They are gateways to communion with the saints and the living God. And let us treat them as such. On this day in which the icons are restored, let us celebrate the triumph of orthodoxy, the triumph of the faith, and let us carry that banner with us and not take it for granted. May God grant this to us. To the praise and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Christ is in our midst.